Amen. As we were singing that, I thought of a sermon, sort of a sermon, I heard years ago at a conference, sort of like Amway. It wasn't Amway. I won't identify what the pyramid scheme was, but uh, they had a big conference uh, down uh, at one of the beach towns, and a guy was uh, to give the keynote address, and he said, you know, I thought a long, long time about what I might say to you, and uh, I've determined that I won't use my own words. I want to refer to the greatest teacher that ever lived, Jesus, and then he began to uh, read to them the Sermon on the Mount, and I thought then, and I think now, that's like seeing a person battered by the side of the road with wounds that are deep and saying, here, let me help you. Let me give you some salt. The Sermon on the Mount is simply a mirror that shows us what we can't do. If that's the greatest teaching Jesus ever gave, that's harder than the law God gave to Moses and the people of Israel. I need you every hour. Your righteousness is my righteousness. I said last week that uh, extrapolating from that great theologian Mark Twain, that if Jesus is the greatest teacher and the greatest storyteller who ever lived, then the greatest story that he ever told was the story in Mark 15. Starts with a lost sheep, continues through a woman with a lost coin, and gets to a father with two lost sons. And the last lost son is the one that's often overlooked. And that's a bad thing to overlook that lost son because actually that fourth lost person, that fourth, fourth lost object, is really the object of Jesus' teaching. The elder brother, in Greek it's Presbyteros, from which we get Presbyterian. So for all of you Presbyterians here, how important it is to really focus in on what Jesus tells us, the end of this story about the elder brother, because the reality is we are both brothers, both sons, desperately in need of Jesus every hour. So let's take our mind and our hearts and turn to his word, chapter 15, Luke's gospel, beginning in verse 25. Remember, the party's begun. Now his older son was in the field, and he came, as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. The servant said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes has come home, you killed the fatted calf for him. He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother, 
was dead and is alive. He's lost, was lost, and is found. On May 11, 1960, Adolf Eichmann was arrested in Argentina and extradited to Israel for trial. Eichmann was the mastermind behind concentration camps in Germany. In fact, he called them the final solution. Nine months after his extradition, the trial began. It was broadcast on Israeli TV without any modification, without any restriction. There, Eichmann sat behind a bulletproof glass enclosure. And every prosecution witness, and there were hundreds of them, were brought into the courtroom right past Eichmann behind the glass. When some came in, they fainted when they looked at him. When others came in, they cursed at him. Suddenly, they brought a man in who looked at Eichmann and he fell on his face crying. When they asked the man later, what happened? Why did you do that? He said, when I looked at him, I thought I'd see, I thought I'd see a a demonic figure. I, I thought I'd see somebody who was totally despicable. I thought I'd see somebody that's totally different from me. But when I saw him, when I looked in his eyes, I saw myself. And I couldn't help it. When I saw him, I, I fell on my face and said, that's me. Nine years ago, Billy Graham preached his last crusade in New York City. Interestingly, Newsweek, that was still a magazine, covered it in two pages. John Meacham, who was the editor-in-chief, who's now gone to Time magazine, wrote this article, and he said this. Since Graham's crusade in Los Angeles in 1949, Billy Graham has been in the public eye. He's known every president from Harry Truman to George Bush. Obviously, Barack Obama as well today. Still, Graham is consistently bipartisan. It's difficult to think of many people who can say that they are genuinely close to the Clintons and the Bushes. That Billy Graham can claim the distinction of friendship between these two polar opposite families with sincerity is a testament to his amazing pastoral gifts. Chief among them is empathy. An empathy that grows in the heart of all who are truly growing in Christ. Now, Meacham is Episcopalian. I don't know where he stands with Christ, but he nails it there at the end when he says empathy. Empathy grows in the heart of all those who are truly maturing in Christ. Webster defines empathy this way. It is the capacity to participate 
in the feelings of another person. And that's exactly what we see this father doing. Jesus says, while his younger son was a long way off, the father sees him. He has compassion. He runs to him. And he demonstrates empathy. Unlike the lost sheep, unlike the lost coin, this son is lost willfully. He's lost of his own making. He's done the unthinkable. He's demanded his inheritance. He's demanded that his father divide his estate. That's a crime punishable by death. Then he takes the property. He liquidates it in a public sale, a public offense. Then he goes into a far country. He loses all of his inheritance to Gentiles. And as soon as he does that, he is guilty of a death sentence. There's a public trial awaiting him if he were to return or if he's ever found. And yet when the father sees him a long way off, he runs to him. He catches him before he gets home to the village. He restores him. He says, bring my finest robe and put it on him. Bring my signet ring and put it on his finger and put shoes on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. Let's celebrate for this my son who was dead is alive again. The one who was lost is found. He does all of that. He does far more than the shepherd does when he finds the sheep. He does much more than the woman does when she finds the coin. He is willing to humiliate himself. He's willing to lay himself down for this reckless son. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, in the midst of the celebration, in the midst of the party, Jesus says, this father does far more than he ever did for the younger son. He leaves the party to find this other son who is equally lost. And that's the rest of the story. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the inquiry. Look at verses 25 and 28. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near the house and heard the music and dancing, he was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. Now the NIV says, he came out and pleaded with him. Now this word that's translated entreated or plead is an amazing word in Greek. It's a compound word. It begins with the preposition para, which means alongside of. In other words, what the first century hearers would hear Jesus say is that the Father came out and stood alongside Him. And every hearer in Jesus' culture would know what Jesus means. When He says the Father came out and was beside Him, it meant that the Father could 
empathize. He could experience all that that son was feeling and seeing. He came alongside him. He could get into his son's skin. He could identify with how his son is feeling. He could see the world through his eyes. That's what Jesus is saying. He comes out and he knows exactly where this son is. Now that's exactly opposite of what this son does with that servant boy. Remember the story. The the son comes and he hears dancing and music. Jesus says he calls for a servant boy. That's the literal Greek. Now the word call there begins with a different preposition. It's a preposition that literally means he got in front of him. In other words, what this older son does is he calls a young servant boy and gets in his grill. He gets right in front of him and he's angry and he's bitter and he says, what's going on here? As if this servant boy has anything to do with what the party's all about. This older brother is an SOB. And yet when the father comes out, he's willing not to get in his son's grill. He's willing to draw near that son next to him and he can see the world through his son's eye. The son lords it over a servant boy in anger and in selfish pride. And what Jesus is showing us is this Second son, this elder son, this Presbyterian is just as lost and just as evil as his younger brother. Second, notice the insult. Look at verses 29 and 30. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now of all of the people in my life that has opened up this greatest story Jesus ever told, there is no one that has opened it up any deeper to me than Dr. Kenneth Bailey. Ken Bailey, for 40 years, lived in the Middle East. He taught the New Testament there. For 20 years, he was the professor of New Testament and biblical studies at the Near East School of Theology in Beirut, Lebanon. I want you to listen to what Ken Bailey says at this point in the story. It's almost impossible to convey to a Western audience. It's almost impossible to convey to you and to me. The shock that must have reverberated through the banquet hall when the father deliberately humiliates himself and leaves his party guests. No host 
in the ancient Near East would ever do that. Every host in the ancient Near East was legally bound to stay with his guests. That was hospitality. And yet this father leaves the party. And as he does that, he breaks every social convention. In rescuing his younger son, he leaves the house when nobody's there. In rescuing his older son, he leaves when the house is full of guests. That's something no one ever did. Now, think of this. To leave your house to rescue your son from coming judgment and death, that's one thing. But to leave your house full of people, to forego your duty of hospitality, to rescue a son who's refusing to come into the party, which was a public insult, it's quite another. Not only that, listen to how this guy addresses his father. He doesn't use his name. He doesn't say father. That was a punishable offense. Maybe today we might say to our father, look here. But in the ancient Near East, in Jesus' day, nobody would ever address his father that way. That was a crime. Not only does he not use his name, he says, look, or as the NIV says, behold. That was a felony. To say to your father, look here, behold, was to put yourself in a superordinate position and treat your father like he was a slave. That's exactly what he does. No son in antiquity would talk to his father this way without receiving the severest punishment. And yet the father doesn't dole out his punishment, he doles out his empathy. Now understand what Jesus is saying here. This son is no less a hater of his father than the younger son demanding his inheritance. This son, unlike the first son, explodes at his father in the same way he explodes at the servant boy. Never mind that he's experienced blessing upon blessing. Never mind that all that, he ha- all that his father has is his. Never mind that he's received twice as much as his younger brother when the inheritance was divided. Never mind that his father has been humiliated by coming to find him. He's just as wicked, just as proud, just as lost as the brother that people refer to as the prodigal. This father's got two boys. When you read it in English, it seems like they're very different. When you understand it in its first century context, they're no different from each other. They both are desperately lost. Third, I want you to notice the intercession. Look at verse 31. When the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, And all that is mine is yours. Now, there are a number of words in Greek for a male offspring. 
But the word the Father uses here is not well translated in the ESV or in the NIV. I didn't check any others. This Father doesn't literally say son. You know what he says? He says, my child. It's exactly the same word that Mary uses when Mary and Joseph find Jesus in the temple at age 12 when they've lost him for a few days. My child. His father doesn't say, my son. He says, my child. Think of it. In the face of his son's wickedness, in the face of his son's abuse, in the face of his anger, in the face of his disrespect, the father says to him, my child, you are always with me. Do you see this? In the face of his rant, in the face of his lies, you know what he says to his father? I've obeyed you. I've worked my butt off for you. You know the word he uses in Greek? It's the word that's used to describe the labor of prisoners. I've worked like a prisoner to you. He could have used other words. Not only that, he says, you never gave me a young goat. You know, nobody ate young goats except if you were totally and completely starved. What he's saying to his father is, you never gave me anything. You never even gave me junk food like a young goat. And then he says, but when this son of yours who lost everything to prostitutes, how does he know that? Jesus doesn't talk about the immorality of the younger son. He talks about the waste of the younger son. In the face of all that, the father says to him, my child. You file that under empathy. And then fourth and finally, notice the identification here. This is where we really see forgiveness in all of its beauty. Look at verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You know, at Princeton, they have a huge speech department. You wouldn't know it listening to me. They spent a lot of time working on reading And I never forget, this is one of the passages they said, read it. So a number of people read it out loud, and then the professor said, what's the most significant word in the whole parable? There are all these guesses, and she said, you're wrong. And then she read it. Now read it as she did. My child, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother. He's not a friend. He's not a neighbor. He's not a servant. He's not even principally a son of mine. He is your 
brother. Your brother. Your brother was dead. Now he's alive again. Your brother was lost. In 1955, now this is one of these things you kind of remember, you think it's useless information until I guess the Holy Spirit brings it to you. In 1955, there are two psychologists who developed a test to help people better their understanding of themselves and their relationships. And I remembered it from, I guess, Psychology 101. It's called the Jahari Window. The Jahari Window. Have you ever heard of it? Now you have. So it's a test to help a person see who they are and who they are in relationship to other people. And it was conducted this way. They took a couple of people and they gave them a list of 56 adjectives. And they said to each one of these people, we want you to pick five or six adjectives that you believe describes yourself. And at the same time, they gave the same list of 56 adjectives to friends of these people and said, we want you to pick five or six adjectives that you think describe these people. Got it? Then they took the responses and they were able to superimpose those responses on a quadrant, a window with four panes. Think of the cross. There's the upper left-hand corner, right? That quadrant represents what a person knows about himself or herself and what others know about them as well. It's what that person can see and others can see. It's called the arena. Got it? Upper left-hand corner, that's what is known. It's called the arena. It's what you can see in yourself and what others see in you. The lower left-hand quadrant, right under the arena, is what you know of yourself but others can't see. It's called the facade. The facade. You know it, you can see it, but others can't see it. You following this? The right-hand lower quadrant is what you can't see and neither can anyone else. It's the unknown. Okay? So you've got the arena, what you can see and others can see. You've got the facade, what you can see but nobody else can. And then you've got this quadrant in the lower right that is the unknown. It's what you can't see and neither can anyone else. It's totally unknown. And then the upper right is what you can't see but everybody else can. And that's called the blind spot. That represents what you can't see but everybody else can see in you. 
And of all the quadrants that intersect with forgiveness, the blind spot is the most important quadrant. What you can't see, but others can. Look at the father in the story. My child. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For the one who's come home, the one who's been rescued from death, the one who's been rescued from that trial is not a friend, he's not a servant, he's not somebody that's a neighbor, he is your brother. You see this? That older son can't see that. At least he doesn't see it until the father points it out. Both sons are lost. Both sons have sinned. Both sons are shameful. Both sons are broken. Both sons have incredibly large blind spots that only the father can see. So look what he does. Look what the father does. He forgives them by shining the light of his forgiveness into the blind spot. How does he do it? How does he do that? He does it the same way with both sons. He points to their true identity. Think of the younger son. By forgiving that son, what the father is saying, by restoring him, forgiving him, showing him mercy, showing him absolute grace, what he's showing his son is, you are primarily not a waster, You're not a citizen of a distant country. You're not the feeder of pigs. You're not the waster of your inheritance. You are a wearer of the best robe that I have. You're the wearer of my rings. You're the wearer of shoes. And only God's children got shoes. You're my child. You're not the prodigal son. You are my child. And what does the younger son do? He's willing to admit his blind spot. He's willing to say, I lay myself down in the face of your mercy and grace. And he goes into the party. So what's this older one? Remember what we said over and over again. Every sin has a cost. The question is, who will pay it? Forgiveness means that someone other than you pays it. Who pays the price of the older son's sin? The same one who pays the price of the younger son's sin. It's the father. Now think of this. The father leaves his house for both sons. He humiliates himself for both sons. He points to the true identity of both sons. He invites both sons to come in and have fellowship with him in a party. The only question that remains in this story is one question, and that is, will the older son accept it? Will he admit his blind spot? Will he take the first necessary step toward freedom, which is coming into the party? Will he allow himself? Will he allow himself to celebrate and be glad that his brother is found? Will he accept his true identity? Will he get real 
and admit his blind spot? Will he humble himself and come in? Or will he stay in his pride and his blindness and stay outside? Jesus doesn't answer the question. You know why he never answers the question? Because when he tells this story, everyone who hears it is in it, including you. The question he always asks us every moment of every day is, what will you do? Will you come in? Will you admit your blind spot? Will you admit you're as screwed up as both of these sons? Will you admit what that Jewish man admitted in that courtroom in 1960 when he saw Adolf Eichmann? He said, this man is just like me. Will you admit it? Will you admit who you are? Will you lay yourself down? Will you receive his love and acceptance or will you keep on going your own way? And you know what? It all turns on one simple word, and that word is pride. Will you stay in your pride? Will you nurse your pride, or will you slay it? Will I admit that I have a blind spot? Will I admit the counsel of others and accept it? Or will I go on hiding? Will I walk in my true identity or will I continue to retain my false identity? That's the question Jesus continually asks us. That's the question forgiveness always asks. I mean, think of this. If He's found you and He's forgiven you and He's freed you, the question is, will you walk in it? Will you live in it? Will you live in such freedom that you are able to give to others what you yourself have received? That's the question. And only you can decide. Only forgiveness can get you there. Only forgiveness can keep you there. Why? Because forgiveness is the heart of the gospel. Forgiveness is the heart of your need. Forgiveness is the heart of the matter. Think about that. Amen.